Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. I'm really excited today to be joined in the studio with Alexandra Kokoli, who is author of The Feminist Uncanny, contributor to the Tate in Focus series, um, an expert on Susan Hiller, among other women artists of the 1970s. Um, Alexandra is also um, is the co-editor of Essays on Tracy Emin with Deborah Cherry and the paperback is actually out today with Bloomsbury and the date is, it's the 14th of July isn't it? 14th of July so by the time this comes out it'll be out on paperback anyway so you can check that out <laughs> essays on Tracy Emin uh, Alexandra's published widely on matters to do with um, visual culture art gender you sit mainly within gender studies and art would you say Alexandra and yeah vis- visual culture and really, visual culture yeah. Alexandra's also was, was a leading research fellow on, on art and visual activism at Greenham Common and currently Alexandra's senior lecturer in visual culture at Middlesex and course leader of the BA in Fine Art. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Alexandra. Thank you for having me, Chantel. Um, I love doing episodes like this because number one, like it's all it's all very sociological and I love sociology. But also like it's it's kind of your work and scholarship sort of cuts across so many different aspects of sort of yeah, visual culture, but popular culture, gender, things that like incorporate um how we understand understand ourselves as women in particular. Mm-hmm. But also how we navigate everyday life in our consumption of yeah culture and art, and I'm always so interested in these things because I don't really know that much about it. I'm, I am I am the consumer, if you know what I mean. So when I hear people um, like yourself, scholars, talk back to me about what this actually means um, and what is actually being maybe sold to us or spoken to us or what how we can understand different things like and we're going to talk about in the show later how we can understand different things like shame and mm. austerity when it comes to art so I think that this this is always a really exciting type of episode because it's a different way of coming at of coming at these really big issues mm-hmm. yeah definitely but it's interesting that you said a couple of things already oh yeah so, go on Alex uh, Sandra, yeah, come I, on <laughs> I know that this, this series is about the sociological imagination and expanding it but actually to me being described as too sociological by art historians primarily is clearly a criticism so yes but I have proudly very often accused of being sociological so I'm gonna stay with that Uh, and the other thing that you said um, about sort of figuring out or being told by scholars what something means I think in some ways it's the other way around because we're trying to figure out what impact uh, images have on society so not actually using our own sort of you know sophisticated tools to figure it out for ourselves but actually trying to see what is the impact of a seemingly not innocent but throwaway image that you know uh, most people would say does not matter a whole lot so it only matters because it has an impact and this is what we're trying to figure out Alexandra, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm, you've just fully checked me, told me about myself, 
educated me whilst also making me feel warm and comforted i'm giving you a surviving sighting mic drop and it's not even it's not even we're not even five minutes into the show surviving sighting mic drop i haven't given out one of them in a long time either that was i am so chuffed <laughs> honestly because i've been listening and you've had some amazing people oh, on the show. Yeah. thank you so honestly like I, i'm telling you it's episodes like this that really like ground us i feel like as well in what we're actually doing and like you said um i i said scholars telling us what's going on you're like no it's the other way around I'm like of course it is Alexandra you're right <laughs> um but yeah it would be really good sort of before we get into it to tell the sort of listeners a bit about how you came to be working on 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 this stuff and how you came to be yeah someone that I mean we're, we're in our initial t- chat we were sort of saying that you're sort of a trained art, art historian I'm sorry I didn't say that in the introdu- introduction and then other art historians saying your work is sociological and that kind of being seen as a bit of like a, <laughs> a, a subtle reduction um, <clears throat> which we obviously embrace as as people that think sociologically and I guess that means like that even that anecdote in itself means that you're sort of your journey into this work has probably mm. been it's very it's very interdisciplinary and sometimes we get punished for being interdisciplinary don't we absolutely yeah. Chantal I, can I just say something about that I have such vivid vivid memories of being without a job hourly paid desperately going from conference to conference largely on my own dime and uh, having these conversations mm. with people that like me uh, went through their PhD process really being encouraged to being as interdisciplinary as possible. I mean, every single one of my degrees is in a slightly different area in name, mm. if not in practice. And we really struggled to get mm. our first jobs. And actually, it's so interesting that my, my proper p- permanent contracts was in that thing that we call critical and contextual studies for fine art practitioners because this is an area that is not only interdisciplinary but always in the process of becoming Mm. what it is so it is by definition fluid and this fluidity really accommodated my very sort of diverse and kind of unruly interests but originally I was trained in a comparative literature actually but at a time when it stopped being I guess it had gradually stopped being that for a while, but stopped being about comparing different national literatures or literatures in different languages and looking at other forms of expression. Mm. So I, I immediately went to visual culture, I guess. I don't know, because I was always interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, That's amazing. So, so if, starting from the beginning, so you, did, you, you were in comparative literature and then you moved into visual culture. Yeah. And then what happened? and then i'm here here but um if we were to talk a little bit about celebrity because i would not consider myself specifically a celebrity scholar i came into it in a very particular way i guess it's worth saying that um my interest there also comes from the guilty pleasure of just like reading all these magazines Mm -hmm. um and of course because you know academics do have quite a lot of trouble understandably switching off especially if we're working in the humanities and social sciences, because we are surrounded by our objects. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, you know, in a desperate effort to sort of switch off and forget about the PhD, I would, um, you know, read Heat mm-hmm. uh, and all these magazines. Closer. Closer. <laughs> Closer is the trashier yeah, twin yes. of Heat. But of course it's the same material. Mm-hmm. And that's also because the comparatist in me 
likes to look at them side by side. Also, mm. I get the two pack, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's the same stuff but with a slightly different spin. So that that is also very interesting from a media perspective. Mm-hmm. What is the identity of these very similar magazines? But I yeah. Just to just to come come back to this point about celebrity and how I came across your work Alexandra. So I was sort of saying in our pre-chat that I feel like particularly over the last sort of 5 years. So um listeners will know that I'm yeah, I was born in 1992, so I'm a sort of mid-range uh, millennial and I'm kind of uh, one thing that I feel like I've sort of witnessed yeah over the past five years and even more recently is kind of writers that are of my generation or near around my age are quite I think it's quite a, to grow up in the late 90s and through the noughties I think is a very particular is a very particular moment very particular conjuncture that I think lots of people can relate to obviously they can relate to in different ways but just thinking about my kind of age group and cohort and we were just before like um, sort of Facebook really took over mm. and like our everyday lives, social media took over our everyday lives, are what we had or what I had in terms of visual culture and celebrity. We uh, Things that spring to mind is like Big Brother, T4 on Saturdays, mm. um, CBBC getting quite a bit more investment, that sort of thing. But then also like you're getting your your Trisha, your Jeremy Kyle. Um, and then, as you say, like the magazines, like magazines were such a big part um, of, of everyday life. And like we can we can draw to Angela McRobbie, like yes. think about Angela yeah. McRobbie, like all these all these things kind of were evolving and you can see where the new media was coming through. But we it, we don't quite millennials of my age we don't have the same relationship with media as gen z i don't think in Mm. terms of how we understand it from a nostalgic point of view i am going to come on to how i came across your work alexandra just very very self-indulgent um uh, initial chat here but um one more thing is the music channels as well so watching music videos like music videos were were like you got the video music awards like that was becoming much more like prominent like all these things were really important to how I related to and consumed popular culture um and anyway so coming on to the present now I feel like we didn't we didn't really know at the time as young people some of the things that we were consuming and how problematic they were, particularly when it comes to women's bodies, particularly when it comes to shame, particularly when it comes to yeah shaming women um, for um, their gendered embodiment of who they were and class, all these mm. things. Anyway, so I feel like there's kind of as as many of us have. have built up the critical tools of understanding what we were consuming as young people, particularly in the 90s and noughties, there's kind of like a a slight revisionism, I think, which is occurring. And that revisionism isn't that people aren't understanding what what is happening. I think that what I see that revisionism as being is that that there weren't people around at the time who were older than us (laughs) were saying, actually, guys, this is not okay. Like, this reality TV is, is pretty wild. It's very sexist. It's very racist. Like, and now you're sort of seeing and like new versions of that from my age, I think, my mm. age group. And I was like, and there was a few articles that came out like in sort of places like The Guardian. And I was like, I was complaining. I think I was complaining to Aaron. And I was like, there's, there's people like Bev Skeggs, like Helen Wood, like all these people that have written. He's like, I need to show you Alec, me and mine, Alexandra's um, uh, article. What's what's a girl got to do? Yeah. I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. Like, it's such a good a article that you published in 2014. And you fo- your case study was 
Josie Cunningham, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that Josie Cunningham famously is the woman who um, had a boob job on the NHS. Yes, that's right. Yes, and that's when I was like, oh my God. Then I came across your work and saw how you were linking, yeah, gender studies, art, shame, bits of celebrity culture and how how all this stuff is really important in, t- in terms of understanding um, gendered visual representations and yeah. what, how that then informs how people see women in general, yeah. Absolutely, like, and it's all on the surface. This is mm-hmm. what struck us, I guess. But um, I have to confess, even today, I'm not very much on Twitter. I live a sheltered life. So when I saw the, the piece on Josie Cunningham mm-hmm. and started to look a little bit deeper uh, into it, I just found some really striking sentences that uh, tweets that I cannot sort of get out of my head. So th- <laughs> there was this tweet by a, ma- a young man uh, who was offended by this idea that anyone should have a breast augmentation on the NHS without caring to know why or how that came about. Uh, he wrote, with all the tax I've paid in my life, this person owes me a titwank. <gasps> So I am, as I said, I'm a very sheltered person, I guess, but I never, and this is verbatim, by the way, it's sort of been imprinted in my in my mind. And this is not um, all the, the usual sort of nastiness, patriarchal sort of, you know, misogynistic nastiness that we've seen become mm. aware of uh, on the Twitter sphere and ac- actually worse sort of pockets of online interaction. It, but it is very clearly saying that, you know, the taxpayer can claim ownership over bodies, the bodies of women mm. who have in any way had the audacity to benefit from the welfare state. Mm. And this is um, actually, you know, other people like Imogen Tyler have written about this, obviously, about this idea of the deserving and the undeserving mm. that seems quite Victorian, mm. seeing a very sharp resurgence. Um, so uh, what, when I sort of read that article and did a little bit more research around it, I did a short piece for the F word at the time. And then we sort of kept coming back to it. But Erin and I had been talking about Jade Goody mm. and her very public death. Yeah. <clears throat> so this was someone with a very interesting trajectory of her own. Um, despite being sort of a mixed race woman, she was like white passing mm. and then was involved after her peak in some ways because she went ahead and won Big Brother, um, having sort of constructed a persona very intelligently in some way. Very smart woman. Very smart yeah, woman, yeah, yeah. right? But really riding out, you know, her very sort of, you know, patchy um, uh, sort of uh, knowledge of mm. the, the, the world and really sort of making up a persona that spoke to the uh, to the public, the, the voting, mm. <laughs> the big brother, yeah, the yeah, voting yeah. public. She won big brother, uh, got a lot of opportunities after that. And then when her career was on the wane, she got to get, uh, she, she got a, po- uh, a, a spot on Celebrity Big Brother and there was involved in a racist uh, incident. And then what came out of that was, again, a very public apology tour. And there is something, and this is where sort of, you know, my art historical, I guess, background comes into it, about a woman in pain, a woman in remorse, that has such an impact. And it does have both an art historical sort of, you know, um, 
presence and that is reflected also in contemporary media including you know reality shows celebrity media and all that so remorseful jade Mm. uh, got yet another career Mm. even though her remorse may have been authentic and Mm. this is like what what gets where it gets a bit confusing and unsettling Uh, she was genuinely remorseful i like to believe and yet got more opportunities out of that Mm. weirdly um and then almost you know by some kind of uh, intervention uh, from above she got a very devastating sort of diagnosis yeah and that was shown live on tv yeah so it's one thing for that to happen on on television but for it not to be edited out Mm. honestly like I do. I think the Jade Goody case story is a fascinating and devastating one, to be honest. And I mean, yeah, for me, um, for me and my family, in terms of growing up, it she was very, she was very relatable. She mm. was very, very relatable. And then obviously she went into celebrity big brother and um was yeah, it's said some pretty awful things and was removed. She was removed, wasn't yeah. she? Um. <clears throat> One thing that was actually strikes me about just sort of you detailing a bit bit about Jade's case is that the levels of shame that she had to go through or that she went through because of how the media sort of, yeah, chewed her up and spat her out, then praised her, then chewed her up and spat her out, then praised her, then she did some harm, chewed her up, spat her out, then brought her back in. Oh, because now you now you're now you're unwell, like I don't want to say that they then embraced her because she got a cancer diagnosis. But what I do want, what I am interested in, and I think it's only now that because I I obviously have my own relationship with cancer, thinking about this is the impact, the levels of shame Mm. that she experienced and the levels of unsettledness that she experienced, that must have had an an impact on her immune system and her body. Like, Mm. as in, like, I'm not saying that that's a, that's a, that's a, um, that's a direct impact and or cause of having cancer we know there's loads of reasons why people get cancer but like that must have impacted her like it must have had an like impact on obviously it had an impact on her sense of self but obviously how yeah how her body functions like that the even just listening back to you talking about it it's like took me took me back to watching her like middle of the noughties up until yeah the early 2010s like what must she have been going through I mean, who knows? But yeah. again, it's about even, uh, you know, on the surface, quite a successful, privileged yes. woman in, by the end of it. Yeah. Um, who gets opportunities that many others sort of reading these magazines sort of pine for. Yeah. So, um, but being used up. Yes. And this is what we discovered, that this idea of being used up applies to women with sort of terribly paid cleaning jobs, Uh, sex workers and these celebrities Mm. in a way that is not the same Mm. but you see like similar threads Mm. through Mm. it so yeah I mean we all were very publicly not just witnessing but consuming the spectacle of all these women getting used up and to give you a much less sort of you know um, painful and extreme example uh, I also we also discovered in in the course of researching the article that it is a very well known thing for um, paparazzi photographers to trace 
uh, weight gain and weight loss mm. of these celebrities. So much so that I, I cannot sort of help assuming that to some degree all that is planned. So as well as being told where they are, it is also um, these changes in women's bodies that get tracked and they have uh, value. Um, it's actually awful. And you know what? More In a more recent documentary on Jade Goody, they were interviewing paparazzis, that the paparazzi mm. that uh, followed her, and they were very remorseful and regretful. And I just felt like, do you know what? I... I just can't, like, I really try and find ways of understanding, particularly when people do jobs that mm. are um, exploitative and cause harm. Like, okay, you're part of a capitalist structure, that's why. But there is something very disturbing about the paparazzi. And obviously, we're not the first to say that. But, and because I used to make thousands from these pictures, didn't they? Mm. And now, what's really interesting, and maybe this is a kind of like feminist response to the paparazzi, because we have, you have your own social media now, people like Beyonce, if she, see, if a paparazzi think they've got a picture of her, she takes pictures of herself and uploads them herself. They have yeah. no value. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So I think this is the difference. <laughs> and also, specific websites like um, uh, platforms like, like only fans. Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. sort of cut out the middleman. Yeah. So that development is very, very interesting. So as well as taking your own photos, although sometimes I, I think, I mean, from what I know, I haven't looked into it in um, enough detail. But very often, professional photographers are hired mm. for these photo shoots, which is great because they have to make mm. some money too. But um, it is the the magazines that get cut out of the process. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like how quickly things have kind of changed. Because us talking about the Heat magazine, Closer, OK, all seeing like the wedding photos and stuff, like really doesn't seem that long ago. And like there's a generation now that are adults that just won't really un like won't necessarily understand how embedded that culture was within our everyday life like I would go to my nan's on Tuesdays um, my nan was looking after my grandma and we would all three of us sit there and I would sit on the floor and my nan would read out to me like all the stories from the magazine oh my god that is such a lovely picture <laughs> like, yes, no, but like she's reading stories about like Chantel Houghton and like obviously Jade Goodie but like it's the Kerry Katona and like all these people, do you know what I mean? We just yes. sat, read as if it's like a, yeah, bed, not a bed, but something weird. It was like a ritual basically to Absolutely. read about these celebrity women that in the not in often they're not writing about them in a very nice way but these are rituals of female bonding do you like, think yeah absolutely watching okay. i don't know soaps or telenovelas yes. yeah. and it doesn't mean and i think uh, sort of angela mccrobbie among yeah. others has really picked up on this that on the one hand you may have a spectacle that in and of itself say I don't know if a semiotician came mm -hmm. in and analysed it. It might not be particularly feminist, but the act of its consumption, collective mm -hmm. consumption, consumption, is in itself a, at the very least, a ritual, a ritual of female bonding with uh, possi possibly some feminist potential in mm -hmm. it as well. Mm -hmm. So there is that difference. I really liked. I know. We're, I know we're going to move on to other other bits um, shortly. But just coming back to a point that you were talking about about being used up, mm. about women being used up. I feel like that cuts across so many different aspects, not just of popular culture and media, but of work and of family life, and like it austerity has obviously intensified these matters but i do think we're at a real real well i mean we were talking about yesterday on the show about 
how much sexual harassment feels like it's increased since the pandemic and how much like our bodies feel like even like think about reproductive rights like what's Mm. happening in the states now as well like it does feel like we're being used up more than ever but then that used upness or that the discourse around us being used up is then able to be appropriated by like the far right or like Mm. transphobic people as like oh protect our women do you know what I mean it's like it's finding a way to talk about I do feel like it's getting harder to talk about this stuff without people that are definitely not looking for liberation for women harnessing our arguments and what we're talking about does that make sense Mm, yeah but I think one of the ways of being used up or possibly just used is for women to stand in for for bigger things so no Mm. single woman can stand up for the cause of feminism and in that respect uh, I've been thinking about again women with a lot of privilege in some ways and I'm thinking here of Tracy Emin and um, my contribution to the, the, the book that Cherry, Deborah Cherry and I um, just have out today and by the way there's like loads of contributions in there I need to say that we've had uh, no involvement with the studio or the uh, gallery of the artist so this is an independent academic wow. endeavour Lovely. Um, yeah. So, um, but what I was interested in with uh, Emin is that she very easily, very sort of comfortably came to stand in for various other things. Mm. So, um, in the early days, in the 90s, she was actually, you know, quite similarly to Jade Goody, um, made to stand in for this kind of lumpen femininity that is both abhorrent but also there for sexual exploitation. Yes. That combination, she really uh, sort of embodied that. Uh, obviously, that no longer applies. She's sort of changed a lot. She's also become quite a successful, not artist, but operative. Um, in the art world, she's, she's had many accolades since then. Uh, but on the other hand, what I've noticed is that she's still being taken as an allegory for what is happening or what happened rather to fine art uh, in Britain by people who, I don't know, reactionaries that talk about the skilling and who only think that what comes at, as art is what's kept at the Kurt Old Gallery mm-hmm. <laughs> above which we, we now are. No, no offense to, to that, by the way, that's brilliant as well, but who have absolutely no understanding or, or no interest in contemporary art. So she came to stand for that. So there is something that Marina Warner have ri- has written about, among others, about women very easily standing in for other things. Most women on money are not there as historical figures themselves. This is changing, but only really in the last couple of decades. But they stand in for countries, for liberty, for um, sort of abstract ideas. Mm-hmm. So the allegorization. Um, that that women accommodate and continue to do so is kind of part of the same continuum. Definitely, God, that's so that's so powerful. Honestly, Alexandra, that's literally blow my mind. Sorry, um, and I think that what do we think about this in terms of? I know we were talking in our in our um, pre chat before we come on the show in terms of this this is a form of heteropatriarchal reproduction. What do we mean by that in terms of how women are? And also, could you talk a bit about how we use the word allegory as well, just for the listeners? Yeah. 
okay, it, it does not need to be visual. I, I meant about, I, I was talking about visual allegories, a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. Mm. Thank you. So that comes directly from yeah, the OED text. Mm. Mm. Um, so yeah, I was um, I was talking about those sort of these um, a female embodiments of greater ideas, typically uh, representing the nation or mm. collectivities. And again, that is far from disconnected from women's reproductive function. How do you see all this connected? I was talking about heteropatriarchal reproduction, but just before we go into that, how do you see the kind of more the the visual representations of women and the changes we've seen in the visual representations of women? How do you see the visual representations or the renewed visual representations of women, particularly within the media and within art, um, as contributing to this in a way that actually doesn't tangibly take seriously women's issues what I mean by that is like it's pretty amazing like you'll walk around London you walk around cities and you see you don't necessarily see thin white women anymore Mm -hmm. like you see a representation of the broad spectrum of femininity of womanhood of non-binary people like this kind of we were talking about it yesterday actually this kind of representation like what work is it doing and what is it masking and what can that what can that tell us about how we think about particularly art and also the shame as well gosh i don't know i mean part of me sees that <laughs> as unequivocally a positive um, yeah that's what i mean it does feel positive yes. but equally i'm like i feel like it's not so i feel like there's something about us getting like it's almost like give us nothing give us something give us something but give us nothing if that makes sense i don't that that, I, that specifically is no longer my area but i would say that my hunch is that you know uh, capitalism rules yeah. so capitalism is very ready and very very happy in some ways to diversify representation Mm. That's why perhaps a focus on representation in yeah. itself can only take us thus far. Mm. Uh, once uh, you know it, it was figured out that it, it is easier mm. to sell to diverse bodies by representing mm. diverse bodies, then they made the adjustment. Um, so I'm very aware of you know the, the, the limitations of what art alone can do. And I mean, you can look at it, speaking about capitalism and art from different perspectives as well, like the amount of, of money laundering effectively that being that is being done through you know benefactors that invest money in the arts, the sacklers, particularly are one such family that mm. basically you know washed, drug money (laughs) by donating to the arts Um, that does not mean that whatever art has been supported by the Sacklers and once you pull on that thread I mean who knows where where you end up it's it's a lot and a lot of these artists are feminist artists as well it's completely mind-boggling I'm not saying that the art itself becomes complicit but it is part of the story and we were going to talk about shame and the yes. reproduction of shame. <laughs> talk, to, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me about shame. So um, shame, this, where did we begin? The, 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 yeah, so there was a discussion of shame, obviously, in Erin and my article about uh, Josie, how, you know, these women are made more vulnerable, made more available through being shamed. Mm. 
um, through these rituals. But shame in some ways has sort of re-emerged in my research on Greenham Common as a strategy that was used very much sort of from the lesbophobic media. So um, so from just, just for the um, listeners, Alexandra, what is Greenham Con- Common? Of course, okay. So Greenham Common uh, was a peace camp uh, that... Um, Whereabouts was it? it at Newbury uh, in uh, sort Berkshire. of West Berkshire um, and um, it sort of started, uh, it was started originally by four women who organised a march from Cardiff uh, to um, the, Ameri- the the US base at Greenham Common. Actually that base, um, that military base was long standing but by then, and it was, it, it served to house, um, to sort of uh, give, uh, have some refugees in it and actually there is an exhibition right now mm-hmm. about its use as um, a, a refugee sort of um, a pl- a place from uh, for people from Uganda, so it has had it has gone through many things. But by the late seventies, it had already been leased indefinitely to the U.S. allies, um, and it was decided in seventy nine that it was sort of earmarked that this is where cruise missiles would be kept. And in opposition to that decision, uh, these people, mostly women, they they called themselves women for for life on earth, but actually included some men and children. They marched from Cardiff to the base itself, made some proclamations. Some of them chained themselves to the fence, expecting to get a lot of media coverage. That was not forthcoming. So they sort of stayed on. And eventually that became a peace camp that lasted 19 years. So this is just completely mind-boggling. There mm. were some interruptions to the peace camp. It wasn't always as buoyant. Its more, most active years were from 81 until, I suppose, 83, 84. Uh, it is also famous for attracting a lot of uh, visitors for actions, such as Embrace the Base, where you know people held hand around the nine-mile me- nine perimeter fence. Uh, and a lot of, we have a lot of photographic evidence from all that. But it's always photographic evidence of actions. I wanted to underline that. So it's not about representation. It's just, you know, f- photographs of thing of performances effectively or activist performance. Um, and in um, December of 83, they did another one that had a very different sort of vibe to it, much angrier, called Reflect the Base. Mm. So this is what Greenham Common was, and it does have a very rich legacy. Recently, um, a, a couple of women got some money together and did some a series of new interviews and other materials about Greenham. So all this is available online uh, for people to research if they're interested. Um, so what, what I was saying is that in my research on Greenham Common, that obviously has been the subject of a lot of artistic work, uh, but also was interested in the uh, interface between art practices and the visual activism there that was very innovative, very impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, so shame was um, used against uh, the women, the, the Greenham women, in a very um, sort of ongoing and very systematic way by the media 
So the women were referred to, uh, as I found out, by the people inside the base. And inside the base were Americans and also military police and uh, British military. Um, they were uh, called smellies. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of lesbophobic discourse and actually being told, you, you know, that you smell is a particularly pernicious mm. form mm. of being shamed uh, that has both misogynistic and highly, highly racialized, racist sort of grounding. Um, and I explore that in, in, in another work called um, on, on a piece by Catherine Hoffman called Free Lunch with a Stench Wench. Um, so <laughs> she called it, she called it. Um, she actually helped me sort of, you know, I, I'm not someone who thinks that you find a theory and you bring it to a piece of practice. Practice, it, 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 the, the best of practice suggests its own theories. Mm. So Greenham, on the one hand, was a site where women were shamed regularly, publicly and collectively and particularly lesbian women were shamed for having mud on them, for being uh, smelly, for having shaved heads. And um, somewhere, I think it was Sasha Rosneal, uh, who was a Greenham woman, Greenham teenager, actually herself, and then, you know, became the famous sociology sociologist that we know. Um, she said that uh, for Guard Guardian represented Greenham women as being very respectable mothers and grandmothers, whereas all the tabloids represented them as being punk lesbians. Um, so shame was part of the discourse very much, but it was also used as um, an activist strategy. So the idea behind Reflect the Base was twofold. On the one hand, by holding up mirrors to the base, you kind of make it disappear. Mm -hmm. And having now gone to the Bishopsgate Institute to look at um, the, the archives of format photography, format photography was a very interesting agency that was women only, but also very militant. So they saw uh, the documentation of um, protest as a form of participating in protest. Um, they actually lined the base with reflective material uh, for some parts of it to literally make it disappear. So all you could see, they replaced the perimeter fence with more images of protesting women on the outside. So that was one side of it. The other side is to actually make, that Rebecca Johnson has talked about, make the people guarding the, the, the base look at themselves while doing it. That is insane. Like the levels of like feminists like organising, but also the levels of resistance to that. Like I, my mind is just blown even by that story. Like that's incredible, but also like rep just shows you how instrumentalized, yeah, misogyny, sexism is, particularly in terms of thinking about shame, but how powerful that can be as well. Mm, mm. Absolutely, I mean it is just mind blowingly um, 
just innovative, politically impactful. Yes. It's it's all of these things. And um, I mean, it's it's one of these strategies that I don't know that it was generated at Greenham. The other thing like web weaving, we know of prior instances of it from the States. What's web so, weaving again, uh, Yeah, so um, web weaving, it, it's literally what it means. So it's about sort of making very loose uh, structures out of thread and wool mm. uh, to put on the fence, but also to block entrances to the fence so it was used in every which way during dying demonstrations sometimes women covered themselves in these webs that made you know the the authorities bend down and cut them carefully or try to remove them very troublesome to remove and also the the sort of again the allegory of spiders weaving and all that stuff and its associations with sorcery all that was mobilized so very practically and symbolically Mm. this is how Greenham operated I think like I I remember you you talking about in our pre-chat before I'd read the article about art as a possible tool for resistance to shame and I remember thinking really can it do that but it can like that's such an amazing demonstration of the power of art and what it can do like it's when I hear about sometimes or in the past when I've heard people talk about like sort of craftivism and like using craft like sometimes I'm like this feels a bit fluffy but actually no it's militant (laughs) like it's actually militant it's organized it's feminist and it almost sort of like confuses the confuses but do you know what I mean confuses the it's like what do we do with the wool will you cut it oh this is actually really difficult like they're winning (laughs) yeah yeah, absolutely so I really believe in the power of all this on the other hand I also believe and have seen its cooptability yes so I'm afraid there's just no easy I mean look at the jubilee celebrations right now I mean how many doilies did you see on top of uh, post boxes I've never seen so much bunting in my life and that's the second jubilee I've lived. Yeah, that's the second jubilee I've been around for. Um, so much bunting, and yeah. So I don't know. Craftivism again, like everything, can be super radical, um, super impactful, and you know, for lack of a better word, on our, our side. And it can also be on the opposite. Side. Neoliberal feels a bit yeah. neoliberal. Can be feel like neoliberal. And I mean, uh, yeah, no, neoliberal or even re- straight reactionary, traditional. Yeah. Because after all, this is like the sort of thing that women do. Yeah. Right. But this is what. <laughs> but this comes back to my point um, before Alexandra about when I was talking about the stuff about representation and talking about like us sort of harnessing or having um a multitude of visual representations and of ways of being but then when it comes down to it are we still then enacting and embodying the things we quote unquote do so make things do you know what does that make sense say a bit more about this so what do i mean by this like i i feel i feel empowered listening to the story um but equally i'm like is are these these gender are these still are these still reproducing gender roles that restrict us or is part of liberation that we are able to do whatever we want whatever we want or respond in the ways that we want to respond to shame in the ways that we want to because we can does that does that make sense 
Yeah, so uh, first of all, being able to respond to shame is yeah. always uh, a degree, shows a degree of privilege. Yeah. And I think to even talk about art, I suppose, shows that as well. Um, I don't know. It can go every which way. I think it's very interesting for me to be an immigrant in this country mm. that has had two, uh, you know, female prime ministers mm. who were among the most damaging mm-hmm. uh, to women's rights and and people's rights mm. and liberties. Like you know, especially the first one was absolutely mm. dreadful. And now we're seeing. Sorry, maybe we're going to contemporary here. No, 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 it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good. We mix it up, we mix it up. You know, the Tory leadership and half the people are people of colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, at some point you need to sort of reckon with the fact that it can just be window dressing. Mm. It doesn't automatically mean something. Yes. So... um, And that's, that. you know what, that's my confused kind of reflections there. That is, you're really good at... You're really good at recognizing um, what I'm trying to say, which is really, which is, which is amazing for me because sometimes I can get a bit confused. But that is what I mean. Like, you, can you just say that again, that last bit again? You're sometimes it's not what it says. It's it. It can be just window dressing. It can be just be window dressing, and sometimes the meaning that we think is there actually isn't. The problem is, is that it is there a bit. So, I mean, I don't know. So Priti Patel has Mm -hmm. famously spoken about the racism that she's faced in her career. Mm. Is that the truth? Definitely. Can you doubt that it is? But being the victim of racism does not make you an anti-racist. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I think this is the gap. All women are victimised. All non-binary people Mm. are faced with, uh, you know... dangers to their safety Mm, mm. as well as discrimination all this is a given but there is a gap there is an opening where some you know deliberate consciousness raising needs to happen if these victims Mm. or survivors if you prefer Mm. become you know um Mm. anti-racist anti-patriarchal anti-sexist sort Mm. of campaign not not campaigners it's mm. uh, resist the system mm. it does not if if being victimized by a system turned you into an opposer of it then we wouldn't be mm-hmm. in the mire we're in definitely definitely it's making me think about yeah artistic responses to shame but then the power of shame in general and i mean we're talking about the contemporary here and thinking about the last few years and covid-19 and and the lockdowns and I've never seen so much shame in my like so much sort of shame reproduced on an ongoing Mm. day-to-day basis like whether it's to do with people how people are working how people are living um how people people not being able to afford food like food but like just do you know what I mean like the, the levels of shame are so are really intensified I feel like and the, and on top of that, the levels of shame, levels of shame have intensified, whilst our levels of empathy have deteriorated. I feel like. Gosh, I ho- I mean, <laughs> sorry, right sorry, again, sorry, it's so negative. But, but when, like, <laughs> is that like when you see people respond to someone like Marcus Rashford trying to like feed school kids, saying stick to your day job. What's ha- what's gone wrong there? Like, what? why on earth would a footballer have to um, come up with a scheme to feed children Honestly. in the eighth uh, richest country in the world? Yeah. I mean that. Anyway, but when you when you mentioned a COVID nineteen, 
uh, my mind did not even go to poverty immediately, even though this is the mm. problem yeah, yeah, that yeah. we're faced in now. But to be honest, I think this society has always been so stratis- stratified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I actually first saw, you know, homeless people on like a grand scale when I moved here. Mm. Um, I did it now. Now they exist in Greece as well. Where did as you go, up, Alexandra? Greece. Whereabouts? Thessaloniki, Salonika. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, now that's changed as well. But it is, um, yeah, it's a very sort of wildly unequal society. But when you mentioned COVID-19, I thought you um, meant people's background. So suddenly we go into people's homes a lot more and we get to see where they live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that opens up a great potential of feeling shame, shaming others um, and all that. So... You know, we allow our students to not even turn on the camera, for example, precisely in acknowledgement that although, you know, we would normally expect to see their faces, we we understand if they don't want to reveal their their background. But um, I mean, that there is a, a, a link definitely between poverty and shame. In fact, this is the title of a brilliant book, uh, Poverty and Shame, whose um, author I now forget. But um, definitely. And impoverishing people um is is an act of shaming them as well mm. as challenging their um their right to live sorry i've been been a bit negative in these last last few bits of the episode but if we're thinking about the possibility of art or the potential for art particularly in this very kind of like urgent moment thinking about poverty what are some things that we should be holding on to or looking to I, d- <laughs> I don't know, no. Um, Young people, but, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can tell you that the, the people who sort of come to interview, yeah. uh, to study uh, fine First of all, I want to defend uh, the right of people to study degrees yes. that do not automatically lead to a job. Yes. Or not an obvious one in any case, because actually, you know, our graduates do get gainful employment. But this idea that universities should be reduced to training centres is again Mm -hmm. um, an aspect of that deliberate impoverishment. Yes. But, you know, art, it's just never going to go away. It's its no. a lifeline. Yes. Uh, at the same time, it is absolutely linked to, uh, you know, the worst kind of like elitism. Um, and, you know, it, it can be a defender of the status quo, including white supremacy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's just about allowing people an in, mm-hmm. sort of showing them that there are continuities between what they already know so people these days young people most of them are very knowledgeable and able consumers and producers of content yes and to allow them to see that there is absolutely a continuity between the kind of portraits that they see in the national portrait gallery and what they do and see every day Mm. i think that is a a, an empowering move Mm. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Listeners will be back again next week. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. 
If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 